0: Hello, John Elder here, science editor with the New Daily. Welcome to the COVID conversation. Today we're exploring one not so simple question. How do you make a more accountable, less combative police force? My guest is Dr. Emma Ryan, lecturer in criminology at Deakin University. Emma's research includes the use of excessive force by police, the use of sublethal weapons by police, such as tasers. She also uh, looks into criminal justice ethics and representations of policing in the media. Hello, Emma. Hi, John. How are you going? Oh, not
1: too bad. Yeah, not too bad uh, for a Wednesday afternoon. You're
0: calling in from chilly Frankston, you were just saying. Indeed, yes. It's, it's kind of cold here today. Well, look, it's running hot here with the news. Emma, on the one hand, we don't have the problem with police shootings that the Americans have. I do remember 25 years ago in Victoria, it was a real problem, especially with bank robbers and mentally ill people being gunned down at a terrific rate. And then a new training program came in called Operation Beacon, and that slowed down things a lot. Mm. Do you remember it? I absolutely do. I was an undergraduate during that period,
1: and I think it's probably studying and living through that which gave me my kind of enduring research focus.
0: So it got it got you kind of peaked.
1: Well, I mean, it was hard to avoid, wasn't it, as a young criminology student? Uh, and it was all happening back then in the nineties.
0: You know, there's a lot. There was a lot to it. I actually remember uh, I, I was sent out to do a, a story on it, and I. I kind of mucked it up because I took too long. I almost got fired actually from the age because I took so long
1: oh, to goodness. do
0: it. And Good. part of it was that I, I, I just found the, the whole thing so complex and I, in the end I didn't write the complex piece that I'd hoped to write. But look, uh, mm. I do remember though at the time the way they were selling it was they'd bring the TV news cameras in and they'd, they'd have a, a role play going on. So you'd have a young uh, cadet police person and another one one would be playing the police officer the other one would be playing a knife wielding assailant Mm. but instead of a knife they were carrying a texter pen and and what would happen is is that uh, he'd make a lunge and no matter what the the policeman did he'd always end up with these inky marks over his body and would have to make a run for it and i think the illustration was look whatever we do here we're doing our best but Maybe sooner or later you have to turn around and shoot someone because they've, they've pulled a knife. Mm. So there was that. But the other thing I, I found was that there was this obviously range of personalities that came out when, when during these role plays. And one of the role plays that they did was in a, was in a pretend bar, like a hotel, and you'd have these two old-time coppers pretending to be just absolutely horrible drunks, you know, abusive and all the rest of it. And the young cadet would have to sort of try and negotiate with them and try and calm the situation down. And, of course, there were a range of responses. But I remember this one kid, (laughs) within about five seconds, he pulled his fake gun and and the old-time police officer going, whoa, 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 you know, and what are you doing? But, you know, it's sort of (laughs) that kind of me said, well, there's always going to be someone, isn't there?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was a complex time, though, we have to remember. So there was a lot going on back then. I mean, I I agree with you totally. Police training at that time was very focused on complex and high levels of risk. And and there was a a strong focus in the training package that Vic Pol had uh, purchased, I believe, from the FBI in the United States. It was called the Firearms Officer Survival Training Unit and it was very focused on, you know, cops getting out of armed confrontations alive. But, you know, in combination with that, uh, remember the Hoddle Street massacre had happened? Uh, Oh, Yeah. Yeah, that Queen Street scenario. And, of course, we can't forget Wall Street. Wall Street had happened too, where, the, you know, the two young constables were, were shot, which is what set off that whole, you know, what they call the police shootings era. So, you know, the situation in Victoria then was, was, was kind of peaked every, and particularly police were um, primed for all sorts of unexpected things that I think has um Victorians which we just weren't used to that level of um I guess public risk you know so we all felt
0: under siege in a way it was it was an extraordinary time and and mm-hmm. I think one of the things that was sort of complex for me to look at it was that I did feel a lot of sympathy because mm. of the amount of fear I think that mm. I realized was in the job mm. and uh it probably yeah. blew my object, objectivity a bit. But, uh, of course, look, if you shoot someone, it is pretty hard to cover up. And, 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 you know, obviously we saw these people dying and there was a response to it. Mm, and yeah. uh, now we've got a different problem here in Australia, and this is something that you look at. A couple of days ago, a man, reportedly an Indigenous man, ended up in a Sydney hospital after being repeatedly tasered in the face and torso by the police Video taken by an onlooker showed he was on his knees and after first being pushed to the ground, he was heard saying, I'm not even fighting you. Are you kidding me? Now, last year, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that uh, New South Wales police drew their tasers almost 3,000 times in the course of duty over the previous five years, and that was according to internal police records obtained under Freedom uh, of Information legislation. In more than 1,000 of those cases, officers logged a mental health issue, obviously, on the person that they pulled the taser on. Mm. Now, this is one of your concerns, is this lack of transparency in the use of these weapons. Were you confident that those 3,000 to- 3, times that were logged, that, that that was the total amount?
1: Oh, Gee, that's a good question and, it's uh, of course, it's difficult to answer. I mean, we have to rely on police to um, undertake the reporting procedures that they're required to. But you do wonder, given the sort of general aversion not only of police but, but all of us to boring paperwork, whether they're going to actually <laughs> come back whether they're going to come back to the station and accurately record, of course they're going to record a deployment of a taser, because you can't help it, they electronically record it anyway. But if you've just yeah. pulled your taser out and pointed it at someone you know, coercively tell them to move on or tell them to stop giving you a lip or whatever the situation might be, you know, it's it's really impossible for me to say whether police are accurately recording those kinds of interactions and those kinds of interactions are particularly important, especially in the Australian context uh, and, you know, in, in the context of the relationship between Indigenous people and police, um, you know, so I've got a bit of a concern uh, in Victoria where tasers are only routinely carried by police in rural areas so yeah. and, and largely areas with high Aboriginal populations. Had I more time on my hands, and, and, you know, very shortly I might, but there needs to be some research done in this area and I'm pretty committed to... Um, getting out there and look we can you know we can put in freedom of information applications and the media often does that bless their souls it's difficult for academics to get the time and sometimes the finances to follow it through but um,
0: and of course you know, there's the question is should, should we have to do that is that something we should we be having to go to that to that trouble you know just before moving on i, I do remember one of the a very very old school detective and, and we were talking yesterday about the loss of some of those old old school skills and old school policemen who 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 could really finesse some pretty horrible situations. But I remember this guy telling me, and he'd worked on some of the really awful task force, that he said, you know, you used to be able to just pull a gun and that would settle everybody down. <laughs> he said, these days you couldn't you couldn't do that. And I think it becomes a, it becomes a point of escalation. I don't know he couldn't understand what the hell had happened and and uh, it's certainly a big question, but that idea you'd you pull it and it could reliably settle things down now it just mm. seems you know your chances are you'll just provoke some idiot.
1: Well, uh, completely, and then why would you pull your gun if you had a taser? Yeah. You'd much more readily pull your taser and point it at someone with very little intent to actually use it. so yeah, it becomes pretty complex.
0: Well, that's right. And the other thing I was thinking about this Sydney situation. Look, we don't know for sure that he was an Indigenous man. It's been reported that way, mm. and so on and so forth. But you know, what is? Let's say he was, and let's yeah. say perhaps putting it delicately, say he he was very obviously a black man. So, so suddenly you got this situation of these guys piling on, letting rip with the taser, mm. right in the middle of of the most of of, of one of the hottest most difficult complex socio-political responses going on around the world which is of course black lives matter in in the wake of the fatal police shootings in in the US yeah and you'd sort of think wouldn't wouldn't all this all this stuff that's going on settle people like you you'd, you'd be thinking actually we need to we need maybe to do we we can't actually be seen to be piling onto some black man and and hitting him with a stun gun it just it's just not a good look. But, of course, that doesn't come into the mind of operational police or certainly of these guys anyway. It's interesting. You, know, you can have these big picture things that are so compelling, but when you really get down to the nitty-gritty on the street, what happens is going to happen. That uh, You know, other people have since been shot in the US and we have this situation here.
1: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, and I mean, I think in that uh situation you're talking about in Sydney on the weekend, I'm not sure whether officers knew that they were being filmed by whoever the mobile phone footage came from. So I'm sure that wasn't a fellow police officer. You know, that'll be a member of the public who whipped out their mobile phone and filmed the interaction. You know, and I guess... This
0: well, is that's, that's, that's made a big difference, hasn't it? Everybody's huge, got these Yes, yeah, and it always does. And
1: you, if you think back to, you know, the Rodney King incident you know, all the way back to then, in in my mind that incident and also, of course, the death of Eric Garner who I think kind of formally sparked the Black Lives Matter movement mm. and Rodney King didn't lose his life but the beating that he received by Los Angeles police was pretty significant and, you know, that was filmed by someone who'd just bought a a, hand, a cam camcorder when they were all new and sparky in the 80s and he just happened to That's be funny. filming out... His window testing out his new camera and he, he uh, you know captured this extraordinary footage so you know the role of, of footage and of kind of reverse surveillance is really significant and something that I think police uh, certainly in Australia are just adjusting to they're just getting used to it I, I know that they Uh, feel nervous about the fact that people might be filming them and and I think it's a game changer in terms of and particularly what happened on the weekend with that taser may well filter through to the next officer who's in a similar situation might just be looking around (laughs) to see who might be filming it and then you see police being quite aggressive towards people who are filming their interactions with the public as well so you know it's so complex and
0: Of of which they actually have the right to do.
1: Yes, they do, absolutely, and thank heavens for that. At least
0: in Australia, you'd think so anyway. You'd think, yes, everyone's got a camera, maybe we need to watch ourselves, but, hey, it it really hasn't, uh, it certainly hasn't slowed things down necessarily in in the States. But, look, you've got some ideas on at least how Australian police police policies could be made more accountable but also Mm. on how they could be better perceived by the general public and, your, your ideas on the idea of the, of the perception of, general, of, of the general public I think are pretty interesting because um, the role that plays in perhaps how police behave and how police see themselves and therefore but also perhaps how self-protective they are. But anyway, there's this tension here between the unknown extent of the bad and even violent behaviour by some police and the problems with perceiving all police to be dangerous. But tell us tell us some of the things that you feel that you think we need to to actually reform and build a better police force.
1: Yeah, so I mean I think number 1 I'm pretty passionate about the idea of civilian oversight of police. And so, you know, there's a model in Northern Ireland, the police ombudsman of Northern Ireland, affectionately called the Pony, um, which is generally held up as the kind of pinnacle of of good practice. I actually heard um, one of the ex-ombudsmen come out and speak, well, probably about four or five months now here at Monash University, and, you know, it was fascinating to see the difference that it can make when the oversight of police is perceived by the public as truly neutral, you know, and you can understand why they urgently needed that in Northern Ireland, sure. uh, you know, where police were viewed as so partisan and the relationship between police and particular communities was so badly fractured. Uh, so, you know, while we do have so-called independent Um, oversight of police. Having a fairly intimate knowledge of how it works, it's really not as good as it could get. I mean, there's a lot of ex-police officers that work within those organisations. So I'm talking about ICAC and IBAC and the Office of Police Review or whatever it's called in New New South Wales now. So there's an element of independence in that a body that is separate from police is able to receive complaints but, you know, there's a huge number of those complaints that get referred back to police to be investigated and then the independent body kind of reviews the police investigation. Now, I've seen that go, go wrong time after time after time and had, you know, all sorts of students doing research and projects and whatnot around the fact that, you know, it was in, internally reviewed and found to be okay but then some footage appeared and it ended up in court and police officers have been charged with assault and all sorts of things when Are, their you, are internal you able to give an example with...
0: from, from memory?
1: Okay, so there was a, a situation in the Ballarat Police Station, I believe it was Ballarat, not Bendigo. Yeah, it was Ballarat, uh, where actually an off-duty police officer, a female police officer, was um, arrested for drunken disorderly She was a Victoria police officer. She'd worked for uh, Professional Standards Command, so she was, you know, an an internal investigator herself. Uh, She was on stress leave, I believe, at the time. Something must have been going on in her life. And she was taken into the police station and there's footage of this as well. It was quite well known. The listeners can go and look it up if they want to. Where she was treated exceptionally badly in the uh, the cells, uh, you know, knelt on kicked, you know, injured, bruised. She made a complaint to the IBAC. IBAC referred it to Victoria Police for review. They found nothing to see here. And then the footage emerged after it went back to IBAC, who carried out public hearings into it. Now, those officers were charged with assault, ultimately. The kind of response wasn't, or the sentence that was given, I think, was around community-based orders, like there was no time served or um, fines paid as far as I know, but there were disciplinary charges laid. Uh, Some of the police subsequently left um, the police force. But, you know, there's this, and this was, I don't know, four or five years after the event. So it takes a long time for accountability to play out. Um, And I think there is a general perception Certainly, amongst people who are attuned into the problem, that you know, while the word independent might be in the title of these organisations or institutions, there's a lot more independence that could actually be had.
0: And of course, a cynical, a cynical soul might look at that case and think, "My goodness, if they're if they're happy to sort of flog a fellow policeman in the cells, what's what's going to happen to me?" Well, absolutely, it's a bit I don't, dark, I guess.
1: I don't actually know whether they were aware that she was. I don't I don't know where they were. No. I'll have, have to look into it more. But as I said, the listeners can uh, go and have a look at that one.
0: Can we just go back to Northern Ireland and just tell me, uh, can you just explain to me a bit more the yeah. effect yeah. and how it played out to, 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 to become to a happier ending? Mm.
1: So, I mean, one of the key points the difference with the pony is that when an incident occurs that requires investigation, They will actually, rather than relying on this rhetoric that only police have investigative skills, you know, so if there's something to be investigated, we need police to do it, they've Mm. actually bought in civilians and trained them in those investigative skills. So it is absolute people who have never been police officers, so police are not employed in the pony, ex-police are not employed. So you've actually got fully-fledged civilians who are trained to attend a scene and collect the evidence independently. So police might conduct an investigation themselves, but the pony will conduct their own. So I think that, and it took a number of years to gain some traction, but what it ultimately did was encourage people to actually trust them enough to come forward and make a complaint. You know, and and it's a kind of a strange... Um, logic, but but the more complaints are received by these organisations, the better evidence it is that, uh, you know, the system is working properly.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, I guess that's that's what we're sort of trying to get our heads around at the moment, domestic violence and, and other yeah, things. Yeah, that... yeah, exactly. How did, how did the police, though, respond? Did the, I mean, the police must have, and especially the police unions who, mm. when I've read up on these issues, police unions have tended to be a bit of a roadblock to... To some of the more uh, pointy end changes especially in terms of people being armed, but how did the police respond and how and did they eventually accept well actually actually th- this this is actually a good thing for us
1: Well that's a good question and I really can't answer it fully. Some other people probably have a stronger knowledge than myself, but I know that the police service of Northern Ireland was now... That's either the current name for them. The police service was was utterly disbanded and rebuilt. So there was a kind of a, um, it's kind of a unique circumstance. There was a a really fertile ground for making the police community relationship better because it was so broken, you know, beyond redemption. So Northern Ireland's kind of like the canary in the, in the mine, in some in some ways, and you know we're having this same conversation now. Well, we're not having it, but people in the United States are having the same conversation right now. You know, maybe we need to. Actually... Oh, with the
0: defunding the, the the forces and such.
1: Yeah, and of course you can't defund police totally. We we're always going to need police, but but sometimes you do actually have to, um, you know, tear it down and and particularly remove the current administration. You know, the current senior level and build it up again to make, you know, a new beginning. And while I don't think we're quite there here in Victoria or probably in any other Australian state, I think there still is enough knowledge now about, and there's there's enough calls for more participations of civilians in the oversight of police. That, um, you know, it really is my my hope and in some ways my ambition that, you know, one day (laughs) there'll be an organisation like that because I'd love to go and work there. I think I'd be stellar.
0: (laughs) Well, you better get that job application going. Listen, one thing that's sort of interesting, though... uh, A social researcher I spoke to very early in this series, uh, discussions we'd had over the years, had said that police were up there with doctors, nurses, and other such, as people that actually overall do respect, politicians, journalists down the bottom, but police, regardless of the bad eggs, um, they're really held in high esteem. I I don't know if it would help if if they actually understood that to be the case, that so what's your, your second one, your second idea is about a database of the, sna- of the state and national use of force. Yeah. And, uh, and also to do with the media is shaping our perceptions because all we hear about are the worst-case scenarios um, and not the great outcomes. Can, can you talk a bit about that? This is a, your second mm-hmm. idea for, for reform.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really pivotal point. And firstly, you know, in order to really get a gauge on on how police are performing, we need to have some transparency around, um, you know, how many... For, so, you know, from my researcher's perspective, you know, I'd love to know how many times a taser is presented, who are they presented against, as you mentioned before, mentally ill people, Indigenous people... How many times out of those presentations are they deployed? This will give us a kind of a bit more of a handle on, I don't know, the quality of policing that we're getting because you can't be running around pointing tasers at people who aren't armed for no good reason. So if we don't actually know that that's what's going on, that's problematic. But going to your second point, I also think it is particularly salient that the media does focus in on what goes wrong and, sometimes, but very much less frequently, on the really great outcomes that police have. So, you know, I don't know if that's something for their PR department or something. I mean, we don't, look, if we picked up Police Life, you know, the Victoria Police magazine, we would probably see some, some good news stories about police. But I think, you know, people just love those salacious details of of things that go wrong. And and that's a real problem in the, I don't know, just the sort of public narrative around policing that, you know, of course there are so many amazing police officers doing so many amazing things. And I think that's what sustains, as you mentioned, the the constant kind of police, uh, the constant public confidence in police is because there's individuals out there who have these interactions, you know.
0: But you also said to me that, and, and before I get back to that, look, I've, you know, the media's problem is, of course, that we're basically, our job in, to a certain extent is is walking out there with a bucket and just, and just filling it with all the mud that's going on, especially when it's in the public interest. And certainly when you do have bad outcomes involving police and violence, I mean, it is in the public interest that we hear about it. But, of course, uh, it happens, we read about it, it probably placed certain prejudices one way or the other mm-hmm. where we go, well, the cops would have to shoot that bastard because blah, 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 or bloody cops at it again. Yeah. Tell us, though, about the, the, the... You were talking to me yesterday about the notion, though, that there can be this very sort of edgy consequence of how the police feel about themselves, how, how prejudices can kind of dig in, and it can end up being a, a bit of a, uh, a toxic problem.
1: Mm, no, I agree. And in fact, going back to Operation Beacon, which came out of, of course, Hal Helenstein's coronial inquest into the number of deaths that had happened in Victoria in a pretty short time. I think I'm right in saying this. I think he coined, there was this, this understanding that police had kind of a siege mentality, you know, so they felt like, you know, the public didn't respect them, that they were constantly under threat. And this did feed this kind of toxic cycle of, you know, um, police feeling hyper vigilant about having to, I don't know, exert their force, I guess. You know, and there's an interesting debate that goes on also around, uh, you know, is it a police force or is it a police service? New South Wales went to New South Wales Police Service for a while in quite a sort of, you know, revolutionary move but it didn't last long and I think the police union was partly behind that they would got their name changed back to New South Wales police force and you know it's probably not very interesting to most people but semantics really matter.
0: Look um, your third point though is about what what does minimum force mean Mm. and we don't really understand it and the law is murky around it the questions of intention are there that need to be uh, both explored and made clearer. And that this is something that you feel is a third aspect that we need to explore for building a better police force. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so I think, um, you know, we need to talk about these things. We need to decide what kind of police force we want. And, of course, you know, minimum force has underscored modern policing since 1829 when the London Metropolitan Police were... Um, Established, and, and Robert Peel back there in England had a really strong sense that arming police was not going to win the favour of the public, particularly in England, because they'd watched what had gone on during the French Revolution and how, you know, gendarme were used against the, the people to put them down and whatnot. So the British people were really, really suspicious. And hence, you know, largely in England, we still have unarmed police. Um, some of them are armed; they have armed response you know, officers and whatnot. But by and large, they've got their uh, nightstick, and that's about it. And we've got the same model in New Zealand. Now, New Zealand has has just rejected, you know, having sort of armed response squads. And then, unfortunately, a week later, a couple of police officers are shot in the street. So I think you know the debate there will will carry on, but. You know, my my I guess my concern about minimum force is partly because of, as I mentioned before, watching Operation Beacon be put in place and those who were around back then will remember that the principle was safety first, that we need to preserve the safety of the officer, the safety of the citizen, and the safety of, of any bystanders. And into that rhetoric and at, at that very time stepped Taser International who had this new weapon which was designed and specifically articulated as designed to reduce the number of fatalities at the hands of police, which there's not very much evidence to suggest that it's done, either in the United States where it is widely carried by police or indeed here in Australia. Uh, however, putting that to one side, a Taser looks very much like minimum force it's not a firearm it's a step down on the use of force continuum so it's a kind of a safe weapon it's a you know it's a soft option but you only need to look at the footage from the weekend to see the ends that that soft option can be put for put to i mean there's no way he ended
0: up in hospital didn't he
1: well and there's no way that a, a weapon that's designed to replace a firearm You couldn't present a firearm in that situation. It wouldn't stand up in a court of law. You know, they couldn't have been bashing him over the head with their guns or pointing guns at him because he was unarmed. But, you know, much of the conversation about taser kind of sidesteps the fact that most of the people against who tasers are used are unarmed. So is, in fact, New South Wales policy directs pol- and New Zealand policy too directs police not to use it against someone with a firearm because of the possibility of accidental, um, you know, the person Distract. might accidentally fire the, the gun as they're being tasered. So, right. you know, so I, I think this minimum force principle is getting a little bit lost because, you know, what I saw in that footage on the weekend certainly did not represent minimum force. And yet, if it's laid out in this force continuum, it's still a step down from, you know, and potentially even less brutal than a, a baton, I suppose.
0: Did you think that ultimately it's, it's a psychological thing, both for the police and the public, in terms of, of what policing's about? I, I put this on the basis that when Barack Obama left, left office, he presented a number of manifestos, I guess you'd call them, to Trump to President Trump one of them was about policing and and what he was had been trying to do and was hoping would continue would be some enthusiasm to to change the culture and the psychology of policing from one of 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 being warriors to being guardians and that and that means that unless you're up really against some seriously bad bastard who's, you know, just blowing away, which doesn't seem to happen that often. No. It no. usually is. You're coming up against someone who's out of their mind. I mean, okay, there's, there's, there's people who've been driven cars at police and, and so on and so forth who who, um, who who really are out of control. But a lot of people who who end up being brought down physically by police are people who generally aren't well. So is it a matter, and this is the continuum I'm talking about, where we would end up thinking, well, okay, how, how do we deal with this person who is obviously a problem to themselves as well as to everybody else? Not an easy question, of course, and, and, and I can imagine if there are any police listening to this, they go, well, that's just a whole bunch of namby-pamby nonsense. But is it, is it something that we need to, be, to more further explore? And I'm, I'm sure it's already going on.
1: Oh, well, look. I mean, 100%, it definitely is. There are ways of of rethinking police uh, and policing and how it's done. I mean, given that we've needed, I guess, the act of policing to be carried out long before we had centralised state-controlled police forces, communities always need to police each other. And, um, you know, is it really beyond the realms of possibility that we could actually train up mental health professionals, social workers, a different kind of first responder. And there are a lot of models where there are social workers or or, um, mental health workers riding along with police and and where they're called to an incident. Now, you don't always get the luxury of knowing the characteristics of who you're going to be turning up to service, so to speak, when you're a police officer. Um, But if we, you know, really did take the emphasis off just police I mean, police, really, they're meant to be all things to all people, for heaven's sake. Like There was a famous article, I think, written many years ago now called Police's Street Corner Psychiatrists, and there's a kind of a resentment amongst police of having to be, you know, everything, And, and fair enough too. You know, they're not mental health professionals, sure. The mental health training has been wrapped up and, you know, improved in various ways, but it's still only... I don't know, a day or two within their overall training. You know, you need much more than that. So, you know, as we move into the future, I think we do need to think about those kinds of models. And and they're problematic because, um, again, many uh, civilian mental health workers don't want to turn up to a situation where there might be armed offenders involved. So, it's almost like we need a middle band. We need people who are trained to potentially use weapons if they need to, but the majority of their training is in the area of mental health. The thing I see time and time again is police yelling and aggressively confronting people who have got a mental illness, which, as any psychiatric worker will tell you, is getting off on the wrong foot from the start. <laughs>
0: Look, you, you just have to hang around railway stations. You have to ra- hang around railway stations, and okay, they're the protective service mm-hmm. officers.
1: Yeah, still are. And they,
0: they seem to they seem to spend most of their time moving on people who are you know um, who are either just look very poor and homeless. You know, they might be trying to just get ten minutes sleep on a bench. Oh no, you can't do that. Move, you know, move on or basically going through everything that's in their pockets and who they are and and so on and so forth. Look, some circumstances you don't know what's going on. There is a cultural issue too. I remember when the first Dirty Harry movie came out and and Dirty Harry played by Clint Eastwood. Yeah. They were chasing that psycho who was going around just, just shooting and a whole range of people. Anyway, Dirty Harry gets this new partner and he was a sociologist. He'd been, been trained in sociology. Yeah,
1: yeah. And
0: was part of this whole new breed. Well, how did the story play out? The sociologist ends up getting shot, nearly killed, and and then says, Well, you know, Harry, I'm I'm just I yeah, it's, I'm just this isn't for me. And so who are we left with? We're left with Dirty Harry and he's 44. Yeah. And then finally blows the guy away, and we're all going, you know, yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was. I wanted to shoot the guy myself. So it's... <laughs> you know, it's I know, look,
1: you know, the Dirty Harry films actually play a big role in, in our, well, my and probably others too, teaching of, of policing They to students, to social science students. Uh, this kind of Dirty Harry icon of what, you know, it's noble cause. Everyone feels like Harry's a standing between us and chaos.
0: I know, with a gun in, gun in one hand and a yeah. hot dog in the other. Do you remember that? He had the hot dog <laughs> and then, you know, do you feel lucky, punk? And you think, yeah, you yeah. bet you don't love it. But, you know, and that's the problem. There's part of us, we look at that and go, oh, yeah. yeah and yeah, yet yeah. it translates into something that's just completely tragic.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, we, we're kind of going, thank God Harry could just throw away the rule book. You know, so it does. It lulls us into this sense of I don't know, there's some kind of primal need for I don't know, benevolent vigilantes or something. You know, sometimes we do want, you know, a big thick blue line standing between us and some nasty bad chaos. You know, so that there is something deeply psychological about this and about how prepared we are as a society to kind of look away from police behaving badly.
0: Oh, look, the, the, the series of films that made me change my mind were The, the lethal, lethal Weapon with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Yeah. I mean, they were just, just <laughs> appalling. You know, when I first saw them, of course, I was a lot younger and you sort of a bit of a chuckle and then you go, God, these guys are complete, <laughs> yeah, bastards really. <laughs> Emma, I wish we, I really do wish we could talk. I say this to everybody, I want to get them back, but we yeah. have to get you back because there's so much to talk about.
1: I'd love to do that. Don. Oh, that would be fantastic.
0: All right. So thank you for coming on.
1: It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: No problem. Look, next week, and I'm pretty sure about this, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be safe to do it, I think so, statues, all that fuss. The reality is you look through 6,000 years of history, just about every statue that was put up to some hero, other people come along and they just tear it down because, well, it's just it seems what, what, what you do. I'm getting a historian in, and we're going to be asking a question. How do we talk about Captain James Cook? Significant figure, but uh, two sides to him. How do we do it? How do we teach it to our kids? Giving them a full picture, perhaps without uh, making them feel too bad about themselves. Until then, goodbye. Look after yourselves.